You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. I want to preach on the subject today of fool's gold. Fool's gold. For much of the time of early colonization of North America, many Europeans were lured to the New World with a lust and longing for riches and particularly for gold. It wasn't until 1848 that gold would be discovered in North America, not in any settlement or city, but in the wilderness. It was discovered in January 1848 in Sutter's Mill, which is now Northern California. And that set off a chain reaction that would dramatically alter the whole distant outpost of what was then Mexican colonialism in in California. This explosion was called the Gold Rush. In her article called In the Gold Rush, All Did Not Glitter, Scarlett Chang writes that tens of thousands of Americans plied their way across the continent to reach the West Coast, a major feat in those times. They were not the first to come in mass. Mexicans, Chileans, Peruvians had already sped north at the siren song of sudden wealth. And in the United States, the news was not widely publicized until the end of 1848, so that the next year, this rush of people, the so-called 49ers, came to California. In the New York Herald, the newspaper proclaimed, the old El Dorado of the Spaniards is discovered at last. The mania for immigrating to California is spreading in every direction. The journey usually took four months. Some travelers died of hunger and thirst, accidents and illnesses. Cholera took the lives of many, and after reaching their destination, danger lurked in accidents, disease, and lack of supplies. With people living in primitive conditions, far from trained doctors, even simple cuts and injuries could prove fatal. And more unfortunate still, some died through the greed and malice of their fellow men. Statistics alone tell a heartbreaking story that some 90,000 people immigrated to California in the six months after July 1848. One of five died within six months of arriving. Through it all, a few got rich, but only a few. Most just managed to pay their expenses. And the promise of immediate gratification of gold, the immediate riches and glory, made people so desperate in this country that they forsook family and jobs to chase the elusive dream of gold. And what you find out is when they started digging, many of them did what is still done today, which is called prospecting. All right. I went this week and watched some YouTube videos of prospecting. All right. They, they dig into the ground. They dug into the ground in rocks, beds and streams. And the glittering sight of shiny rock would often excite and thrill them, often making them think that they had finally struck it big. Well, the problem was that there was another kind of rock lurking in the ground in California, and it was a rock called, does anyone know? Pyrite. Mm. Pyrite is like gold, has a tiny bit of gold in it, but really, it's just a shiny, glittering imitation of true gold, worth nothing. And when you see, what you see is when you put pyrite in the mining pan and you start swirling the water around, what you find was that the pyrite would only shine if you were in the bright sunlight. But once you got into the dark, the pyrite wouldn't shine anymore. And and, and the pyrite was weighty until you started swirling the water around, but then it just kind of washed out with all the rest of the dirt while the gold would shine in the dark and while the gold would stay put when the swirling pan would start swirling. 
What you also found is when you put pyrite under pressure, it would become brittle and crack. But true gold would withstand the pressure and would maintain its composition. The difference between pyrite and gold, of course, is the origin of that English proverb that not all that glitters is gold. This is a principle of life as creatures of God living in this world that not all that glitters is gold. Not all that excites or satisfies for a time or promises happiness through pleasure, treasure, or human measure is gold. It may indeed glitter, but it's not gold. See, in the story that the Bible tells, not all that glitters is God. And what imitates God, what attempts to take the place of gold, <laughs> true gold, is called an idol. An idol is a created thing that people put in God's rightful place of worship, a created thing. And that's what everyone was into in the ancient Near East, where Israel was. It was most definitely what they were into in Egypt, where Israel had just been taken out of. The idols, the gods, with a lowercase g, were images of the, the invisible gods, but they were a visible manifestation of the, of the person of that god. So you made sacrifices to the idols. You prayed to the idols, especially when life got dark and when the pressure was upon you. It's tempting to think of idolatry as the physical act of making statues of gold and silver with, and putting them in temples and praying to them, and certainly that still exists. But the Bible takes it deeper than that, disconcertingly so. It takes it to the desires of the human heart. Colossians 3, verse 5 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. You might not call the worship of money by the name Plutus, as the Greeks did. You might just call it chasing the American dream or fiscal responsibility. You might not call the worship of war and violence by the name Mars, as the Romans did. You might just call it nationalism. You might not call the pursuit of living for sexual pleasure by the name of Aphrodite, as the Greeks did. You might just call it being authentic to who you are. You might not call your love of drink by the name Dionysus, as the Greeks did. You might just call it living for the weekend. But at the core of who we are as loving and worshiping beings is that our heart and anything that replaces the worship of God who made us is an idol. And so finally that brings me to Exodus chapter 32. We've been walking through the books of, book of Exodus. I gave you the outline last week, and I'm, I'm not going to give it to you all again. But Moses has been up on the mountain. The people have been brought out of Egypt. They've been given the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, the second of which was don't make a god of silver or gold. Don't have any god before you. They've heard all of this. Moses has been on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, and finally he comes down, or we come down, through the narrative to see what the Israelites were up to while Moses is away. And as another English proverb says, when the cat's away, the mice will play. And uh, play is what the people literally did. They played with fire, and many of them got burned in this story. Today, I simply want to think through this subject of gold and fool's gold by looking at two things. I want to look at the glitter and the gold. The glitter and the gold. At the beginning of our story, the Israelites are face, facing a dilemma. See, the social environment of the camp is growing increasingly anxious. 
Because Moses, their leader and their mediator between themselves and the Lord, has been up on the mountain for 40 days and impatience is growing. But that impatience seems to betray a deeper anxiety and a deeper fear. They start saying, we don't know what happened to this guy, Moses. You can hear the skepticism and cynicism and and hopelessness in their voice. We don't know if the Lord is still with us because Moses is the mediator between the God of Abraham and Isaac and Israel and between the people. They really don't get to know the Lord if not through Moses. But they've already heard the promises of the covenant. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... Exodus 19, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. All the earth is mine. You shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord. And in Exodus 24, verse 3, the people said, All that you have spoken, we will do. We're down for the cause. We are down with this, Lord. We, we know you. We know what you've done. See, they had seen what the Lord had done. They had heard that they were his treasured possession. They had said All the words that you've spoken will do. But what we see here at the beginning of our text is there are different levels of belief for humans. We can think we believe something. We can say we believe something. We have seen things. But the best way to know if someone believes something is to actually watch the way they live. Particularly to watch the way they live when things get hard. People may say they believe in generosity, but if you watch their lives, do they believe in it? People may say they believe and are committed to following Jesus, but do their lives display that reality? And oftentimes, sadly, the best way to know is to see what happens when leadership and accountability are removed. (laughs) Keep in mind where Israel has come from, though. They have lived in ancient Egypt for hundreds of years, which was a land filled with gods and idols and temples. They've watched the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They've watched God defeat every other supposed God in the land of Egypt. Remember the plagues. Most people think that the plagues are God's warfare against the gods of Egypt, right? They've seen God defeat all of them. And they've heard from the mouth of God, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make idols, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Punishing children for the iniquity of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation for those who keep me, who love me and keep my commandments. So idolatry here as a response in the text is a learned pattern of living from their cultural setting. In fact, what we found out is that the Egyptian bull god, which is the golden calf uh, probably made here, was a good choice for a strong god. It would have been one that Aaron and the people knew well. But their idolatry here could also be referred to really as syncretism. Because if you notice in the text, they refer to the name of the Lord. They refer to the name of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But what they do when times get tough is that they blend elements of what they knew from their culture and what they actually trusted in, which was the golden calf god. They blend that with the God of Israel, right? This is the Lord plus something else. This is the Lord plus the golden calf. This is Jesus plus your perfectionism. Jesus plus your career. Jesus plus your addiction. So the people amass with this desire and they demand of the leader in charge, Aaron, who is, by the way, the future high priest of Israel. They say, make us gods. 
right? And Aaron's position here it shows us the struggle of leadership. It shows us the struggle of leadership when people amass around you and, and want to lead in a way that is utterly wicked, utterly bad, but Aaron does not stand up. They demand that gods be made, and they demand that they see a God who can go before them. They've already had a God go before them. They've forgotten so quickly. They had a God feed them with manna and with water from the rock. But they need the visual aid of an idol to reassure them that everything is really going to be okay. And it causes us to ask the question, where do we go when we are insecure and we are afraid? The Israelites ran to the instant gratification of the God they were familiar with. They knew a deliverer when they saw one, and then they had the golden calf. Which is ridiculous if you think about it, because the golden calf is a piece of wood cut down from a tree overlaid with gold. Someone has to literally cut down the tree, fashion a calf, and paint it with gold. And that's ultimately going to save you. How are you going to pray to a piece of wood? In fact, many times in the Old Testament, God mocks this whole idea of idolatry. Isaiah 44, God mocks the idea of someone cutting down half a tree, using half of it to warm himself by the fire and cook his meat, and the other half he makes a god and worships it and says, deliver me and save me. The Bible says it's ridiculous to put your trust in a created thing that, that is not alive. And that's what calls us to mind from our call to worship today. Their, idol, their idols are silver and gold. The work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. Eyes but do not see. Ears but do not hear. And those who make them become like them. Which is dead and lifeless. So do all who trust in them. See, idols will fail you. Any created thing will fade and disappoint and never truly satisfy. Because created things just like you and me are weak and frail and wicked and have an expiration date. Created things might appear shiny and glittery for a time, but when things get dark, they will no longer shine anymore. Created things and idols might appear weighty and permanent for a time, but when the, pan of, when the swirl of the pan of life starts swirling you around, they will fall right out. But idols also reform who you become. You become like the things you worship. If you worship money, everything becomes about money to you. If you worship sex, everything becomes about sex or power to you. I've read this quote in here before, but it bears repeating from David Foster Wallace. Here's the thing that's true. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice is what we get to worship. Much of what you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if there will you tap your real meaning in life, you'll never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, and you will feel weak and afraid. You're, you're going to need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Because created things cannot handle the weight of your glory that you were made for. In the summer of 2010, I was on the other side of the world. I had spent the whole summer uh, in Hong Kong, China, which, which should be a sovereign nation. I'm just going to put in my own geopolitical opinion right there uh, as they fight for their independence. But uh, I spent the whole summer there teaching in English. And the last summer, uh, the last week of the summer, we got taken up to the country of Mongolia, 
which was about the polar opposite from an Asian context that you can experience, from Hong Kong to Mongolia. Mongolia is like Asian cowboys, okay? Uh, and Mongolian religion is actually deeply tied to indigenous people's religion of North America. It's very animist, animistic, father, son, um, father sky, mother earth, uh, that kind of thing. And one day in particular, we stopped in the Mongolian countryside at a worship site. It was a large tree that was surrounded by altars. People came and brought their sacrifices around this tree, around these altars. And what they did is they brought colored pieces of fabric and they would climb the tree and tie their fabric onto the tree, which represented their hopes, their dreams, their petitions for the favor of the earth. They would tie it onto the tree. And what was fascinating and horrible to watch was that the tree was dying underneath the weight of the people's worship. In fact, one tree had already died to the left of it, and people were tying all this new fabric on this new tree, and it was, uh, it was dying too, because the tree wasn't made to bear the weight of the people's worship, and it was dying. And to my, uh, people came here for peace, people came here for, fav for favor, but to my eyes, it was anything but a peaceful place. It was a dirty place. People came and brought offerings of vodka bottles and cookies before the tree. The folks who came did not smile. They looked miserable as they left their, offer, altar, their offerings on the altar. Because when you go to the altar of an idol, you are usually in a desperate position. And maybe you think, 2019 modern American, that worshiping a tree is ridiculous. But people of God... I just need you to know that it's ridiculous to bow down and serve and trust in a little green piece of paper with Benjamin Franklin's picture on it that comes from a tree. It's, it's ridiculous to trust in the idol of other people who will fail you. And I think that many people who I've met today uh, that I meet often rely on powerful human experiences for a connection with divine, to, to the divine as a replacement of God. Many people in our culture increasingly rely on sex as a source of divine power, as a source of worship in their lives. Because sex, of, it, it exposes us to a deep core power within us. But this too fails, and this too will ultimately eat you alive. So Aaron, in a form that is eerily similar to the tabernacle instructions that we saw in Exodus 25 through 27, he asked for a collection of gold. You remember that? When the people brought out their gold, he says, give me all your earrings. I'm going to melt them down. And then he fashions, which is the same word that God uses for uh, what they were supposed to do in the tabernacle. He fashions this God and then set this calf and says, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. They built an altar before it. They rose up early the next day, offered offerings and peace offerings, uh, offerings for atonement. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Where do you go when you're afraid and desperate? This is the glitter that the people of God turn to. The golden calf is there. At least they can see it. You know, they couldn't see the Lord. They couldn't see Moses. At least they could see the golden calf. It was glittering in the sun, and they partied before it. But up on the mountain, the weight of glory, the Lord, was talking with Moses. And here's what we, here's what we find that happens when the glitter is exposed to the gold. And is shown for what it is. Secondly, the gold. The Lord lets Moses know what has happened. He says, go down for your people 
whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I've commanded them. They've, they've made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it's a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, that I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation out of you. I read that statement in that section of the text with passion because that's exactly what it has. What we see here is God's anger, his jealous, loving anger. It's hard for us to connect with that, I understand. But might, might you connect with this? How would you feel if, say, you knew a friend who had just gotten married and not a week after her marriage, her husband started cheating on her behind her back with another woman? You would rightly feel extremely angry, people of God. You might actually feel like consuming that man in fire. How would you feel if a single, single mother had raised a little girl with all her might and ability over 30 years, had changed diapers, had funded schools, had worked incredibly hard to love her daughter, and in the end, her daughter robbed her of all her money, spit in her face, spread horrible rumors about her, and dishonored her name? You would rightly feel extremely angry because here's the thing about love. The polar opposite of love is not anger. The polar opposite of love is indifference. If you love something, you fight for it. If you love something, you're betrayed by it when it betrays you. Because love has a priority. And that's what we see in those examples, right? A husband should not love another woman more than his wife. That, that betrays the covenant. It betrays the priority of love. And what idolatry is in God's and our relationship with God is disordered love. It is infidelity to the covenant. And God is jealously angry. God's anger is not, is not tinged with rage and malevolence and violence like our anger often is and fear and manipulation. God's anger is righteous and justified and for real, for real. <laughs> right? The anger wouldn't be there if the love weren't there, people of God. But God does something quite remarkable in this text. Many people abstract this little conversation with Moses and God to be a philosophical conversation of, can God change his mind, and et cetera. But that is not what the text is doing. Because the Lord does something remarkable. You know what he says to Moses? He says, move out of my way. I want you to think about that. Why does God need Moses to move out of his way? Moses is not blocking God's way. Moses is not blocking God's anger. I mean, if God wanted to smoke some people right then and there, he could have smoked them. But the Old Testament, in its literature, it, this happens several times. God does this several times with those who mediate between God and his people. All right? He did this first with Abram, if you remember, back in Sodom and Gomorrah where the Lord says, I've seen what Sodom and Gomorrah are doing. I want to destroy them. And Abraham says, no, Lord, please relent. Please don't destroy this people. God, through this little, quest, this little demand of Moses to move out of my way, is inviting Moses as a mediator to speak on behalf of the people. He's inviting Moses as a mediator to speak into the situation and to petition for grace and for favor for the people's idolatry. And that is what Moses does. Moses could have just said, awesome, you want to start a new people with me? That sounds great, because them people down there are foolish. He could have done that. But Moses is this, a picture of a beautiful, selfless mediator. 
when he says no. And he reminds God of three things. He lays out an argument for God for three reasons that build from least to greatest. First of all, he says, God, you have already invested so much time in these people. You've already done so much, Lord. You, I mean, you've already invested all the plagues, Lord. You, you've already parted the Red Sea for them. You've already dealt with their complaining in the wilderness. I mean, you've already given them the law. You've already put up with so much. Why are you going to quit now, Lord? Second of all, he says, what will the Egyptians say? You know, this is, God has done battle against the Pharaoh and against the gods of Egypt. What, is the, what are the Egyptians going to think if God brings his people out and then slaughters them all in the wilderness? They won't think that he's the, God, the good God of all the nations. But thirdly, this is what Moses said. He says, turn from your burning anger, relent from your disaster against your people. Remember, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I promised I will give to your offspring. They shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster he had spoken about bringing on the people. See, the promises of God were as good as gold, and Moses cashed them in that day. God decides through the mediation of Moses to accept the mediator's request for grace. So Moses comes back down from the mountain, and he throws the covenant tablets down and breaks them in plain sight. And many people think this is just Moses' impulsive anger, which he does display at other times of the Old Testament story, as we'll see. But actually, it is to be a visual, visual picture for the people of what they have done. Moses throws the tablets down because you, he, it means to say you have broken the covenant. You've broken the very first command of it by what you've done. And he confronts Aaron who gives him the most humorous response in perhaps all of the Bible. Okay, so here's what happened. So I said to them, uh, let anyone who has gold take it off. And they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and it was like crazy. Out came this cat. We lie when we're confronted, don't we? And people who are in power all the more lie when they're confronted because they don't want to tell the vulnerable truth of I can't believe I did this. Aaron doesn't want to tell it, and so he comes up with, of course, the most preposterous idea in the world. <laughs> Moses takes the idol down. He's pretty angry. He makes it into a powder and throws it into the river, into the drinking supply of the people, so that they can taste the bitterness of the sin they've committed, so that they can get a taste of what their sin tastes like to the Lord. But the people are out of control. So Moses gives the call for repentance and faith. He stands at the entrance of the tent and he cries out, Who is with the Lord? Who is with the God who brought you out of Egypt? Come over here. Right? And then he amasses the Levites. And they go throughout the camp. And they ask every person, Are you with the calf God? Are you with the Lord? They refuse to repent. And they were put to death. And that had already been a stipulation of the Lord's law. He didn't say, he, God has said to Moses up on the mountain that he would not destroy the people, that he'd take them to the land. But what he didn't say is that there wouldn't be consequences for their rebellion. The camp had to be cleansed of idolatry because idolatry was death. And the Lord could not dwell amidst idolatry. So the people of Israel, they didn't have a method set up for the priesthood and the tabernacle. They didn't have a method set up for atonement. And those who didn't repent were punished. 
There was a consequence for the lack of repentance, but there was also a consequence for the repentance, which was grace and favor. But some refuse and some die. And yes, this text is heavy. I get it. A lot of preachers who preach this chapter just skip these verses, and I can understand why. I got some caveats for you, okay? First, we read this text and we're tempted to see a, a portrait of God who is vengeful, angry, cruel, vindictive, impulsive. But the story of Exodus is not the story of that God. The story of Exodus is a God who heard the cry of the oppressed, who would, hear, who would stop at nothing to save his people, who has shown his people over and over again his faithful love, which also means showing them his anger, his righteousness, his protection, and his jealous love for them. That's what's going on. We might also read this text, people of God, and be triggered because we might have either been exposed to or had experiences with cultish, fundamentalist Christianity or religion. A religious community that decides upon itself to enact punishments, abuse, control, and manipulation to keep things pure. That is not what is going on here because the people are working off of God's direct command and divine revelation. That is how God worked at this particular moment with this particular people at this particular time. You should not trust religious leadership that claims some divine revelation or divine sanction for wicked actions. This is God punishing, punishing sin once in the real time, and we should be thankful that he doesn't do that with us. Third, this text does not apply to you as you live in a world where people worship a lot of different things. You are not commanded to take up a sword and start slashing people. I, I might need to say that. Either with your heart or with a real sword or with actions. We see in the New Testament how Christians are supposed to live in an idolatrous pagan society, which is to reason with people and to show them the beauty of the kingdom of Jesus and to proclaim the gospel. Finally, my last caveat is that this text underscores the need for a mediator and it underscores the need for someone to bear the sin of these people. So that's where, the, that's where the, the, the narrative goes. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I'll go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people have sinned a great sin. they made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place. I'll send an angel before you. And the Lord eventually visits again the sin on the people and punishes them through some kind of plague because the calf they had made. Moses asks God if he can be the mediator. He says, blot me out of your, your book of life which is a beautiful moment as the mediator, but the Lord says to him, no. And we're like, why? Because Moses doesn't have the capital to cash in that request. Moses can't be the mediator as a sinful person for sinful people because the law has already shown you that for a substitute as a sacrifice, you need one that is without blemish and without spot. Moses cannot substitute for the people. That's ridiculous. And the whole rest of the Old Testament story will, will largely be a story where the golden calf impulse comes back again and again and again. This is not the last time you will read of idolatry and the people. Because the human heart, as John Calvin once famously said, 
is an idol factory, always making gods that come before God. So the answer to this is a better mediator. The answer to this is God makes himself flesh. Hebrews calls Jesus the image of the invisible God. And this divine image of God becomes the object truly worthy of worship and adoration. But not only that, he, be he became the mediator, the perfect mediator that the people of the world needed and still need today. Moses said, blot me out of your book. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done, Father. If you want to see the heart of God and who God is, you have to look at Jesus. Because in looking at Jesus, you will see where the justice and mercy of God perfectly meet, which is on the cross of Calvary. You see a God who gets his heart broken, who gets his face spit on, who gets betrayed by his lover, but who gives himself up to win his lover back. Because the only thing, people, that can draw you from the idols of your own heart is the beauty of a far greater love than those that you're attracted to. Of course, which Thomas Chalmers once called the expulsive power of a new affection. You have to be drawn from the beauty of created things by the beauty of Jesus and his love. You have to know that though your idols might seem shiny in the sun, when things get dark, their, their light will fade. That though your idols seem weighty and permanent, one little thing can take away everything. You have to know the eternal one. You have to tie your hopes up onto the tree of Calvary and not on the trees of created things. So people, as God, as I close, I say don't tie the weight of your worship up on things that can't bear it. That's what the golden calf episode uh, means for us. Turn from your fool's gold and see the true gold of Jesus. That day in Mongolia, we left that altar site, the tree that was being worshipped. We left this dark place and we drove to a small little village in northern Mongolia, right on the Russian border. We looked out over the Russian border. And it was there that a small, tiny Christian congregation welcomed us in. We have to walk through some crazy alleys and go to this random door. But the contrast between the tree and between this little church could not have any, been even any greater because the people who welcomed us in were filled with joy as they invited us in. And I will always remember watching two young Mongolian girls dressed in traditional garb come out and do a traditional dance in their native tongue to sing of the praise of Jesus. And it was the peace of the kingdom that I saw, the beauty of Jesus reflected in the face of those young girls. We don't live in a culture with, with altars under trees. We live in a culture with altars in shopping malls and bank accounts and gun chests and resumes and families and political parties. But the thing that will make the misery of those altars appear is the glorious joy of the kingdom of God. That's what you are beckoned into today, to come back to the one who made you, to come back in true worship to Jesus. Amen. Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.